Welcome to a new episode of the Surprise Multiplayer Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ozzy Monroe. Today, along with my co-hosts, Jeremy and John, we welcome Gareth Watts, co-founder and TTO of startup company Atolia. Join us as we delve into how Gareth discovered his passion for computing at a young age and how he navigated his career through the rise of the internet and some of the world's most successful tech companies. Get ready for a candid conversation filled with insightful discussions and a peek into the world of cutting-edge AI technology. So let's dive in. And as a reminder, we can now be reached for feedback, suggestions, and questions at banterreviewcrew at surprisemultiplayer.com. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Surprise Multiplayer Podcast. I'm John, joined by Jeremy and Ozzy. Today we have Gareth Watts, co-founder and CTO of Atolio, dropping in. Gareth, why don't you share us a little bit about yourself, your background, so your CTO of Atolio. How did you get there? You're, sorry, co-founder and CTO of Atolio. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you start with telling us about your background, everyone here? I know you've met us at least once when we were doing the prep here, but we can also give you a little introduction of ourselves. Obviously, I'm John. We've met a lot before. Yeah. yeah, great to see you all. I think uh, lifelong nerd is probably the the easiest way of explaining it. And I've, I got into computers when I was a kid, like many other people, when 8-bit was king and your biggest problem was getting your cassette to load and waiting a quarter of an hour for that to happen and getting frustrated. So I already started writing software when I was like 10 or 11 years old. And before that really was a career, I think, for many people. And I you know just got lucky kept going with that and started, helped start one of the, one of the early ISPs or regional ISPs in the UK back in the nineties and saw Google become a thing, saw the web become a thing and just enjoyed like all aspects of technology. And I know that full stack engineer is old hat, but it's just all, all interesting to me from the firmware all the way through the networking stack, through web browser and writing web code to backend, like it's all good. Went through and did some of that and then ended up working for what was then VA Research and VA, then VA Linux Systems and working on Linux.com and SourceForge.net when that was new and shiny and, and wonderful. And that was great to work on. There was a great team there. And then ended up working on Splunk early from 2006-ish, I think, through their IPO. And yeah, another amazing team out in San Francisco. And I think that the nice thing about Splunk was it was the product I wish I had when I was at the ISP and that was why I wanted it. I don't have to use grep-r anymore. This is incredible. So I worked on that for years and then to another company called Anki, which was an AI robotics company. And just, again, it was just the most incredible bunch of people working on what they intended to do was put a robot in every home, but started with toys and just to get the ball rolling and had little toy cars that are racing around tracks and they're at WWDC demoing with that back in the day and then working on robots called Cosmo and Vector that you could basically fit in the palm of your hand that you could talk to and interact with. And that was a great product. So working on the cloud backend for that and lots of stories about that. But yeah, and from there, that company, unfortunately, was going to go one of two ways. Either it was going to achieve their dream and become this massive multi-billion dollar company or not. And unfortunately, robotics is a hard place to be. And so that, that folded in 2019. And so that became an opportunity to say, what's next? And so myself and one of my other co-founders, we used to work together at Splunk and we'd always said it would be great to, to start a company one day. And 
really take some of the patterns we like from Silicon Valley and some of the anti-patterns that we've seen over the years as well and build a company from scratch and tackle something really kind of meaty and meaningful. It had been bugging us for a long time. And Tolio was born with one of our other co-founders that David worked with at PageDuty. And, and here we are trying to uh, try to build something incredible. And I think we're getting there. <laughs> That's a, it's a pattern I've seen a lot from people, which is that I was in tech very early and I liked solving problems. But the part that I didn't hear, which I wanted to ask is BBSs. How much time did you spend on BBSs <laughs> in the nineties? Uh, I can't tell you how much money I spent on phone bills. There was no free phone calls in the UK, unlike the US. So I, I think my first modem was a manual dial V21, V23. Wow. And so I was dialing into bulletin boards pretty early and I ended up getting my first PC. I ended up working when I think I was 16 or 17, I had a part-time job at a, at a computer store in, in Norwich in England. And so I ended up getting a good deal trading in my 8-bit machine for a 486SX20. And that's that became SX20. That's all, that was all my budget would strip, it would yep. stretch you with four megs of RAM. And that became the first node of my bulletin board that I ran for a number of years then. Uh, what software did you run? Wildcat? Robo BBS? Which I can't memory here. <laughs> oh, Ren I, I remember Renegade. I remember all kinds of weird ones. I ran remote access oh. on my system, which was an Australian system. And that was great. I took over the family. It started from 10 PM to 8 AM on my family's yeah. phone line. And then they didn't like the incoming calls in the middle of the day from people that didn't realize that. And so I took over the, the family phone number and turned that into 24 seven, added another node, ran desk view on it to uh, oh, do God. some multitasking and yeah. You show, make me show my age already. <laughs> no, I love this stuff because I remember getting desk view because I wanted to run two lines on my BBS, but the doors always, even when I got the BBS story, everybody wanted to play the sysop doors and some of those mm -hmm. little games, trade wars and all them. Oh, and yeah. so the doors were what kept me from going back, kept me in desk view for years, just because it always worked and it allowed me to keep those things up and running for years it was it was, awesome. it was really good yeah and so much easier to reason about software at that point in time as well and and of course that kind of there was no internet to draw on when i was doing that so if i needed a piece of software it's like i need to write it so then you're into turbo pascal and writing software for that and the best way to learn anything is to have a problem you're passionate about and i had plenty of those and having a bulletin board made contact with other sysops and some of those were programmers too and so they were helping me out learning turbo pascal and then c plus plus and really getting into the weeds with some of that stuff. So that was a nice intro into that space. And, but it was cool having a bulletin board in your bedroom and waiting for the call to come in and seeing what people are doing with the system and, and finding it useful. And I miss that on the internet today, some of that one-on-one -on -one kind of, you know, interaction that you had with bulletin boards back then. And there was a commitment to joining those kind of things, which was fun, which was that you were committing to something that was going to be a small group because only one or two people, but it, like you said, I, I do miss it, but the world's changed. It's fun. It's nice to reminisce, but yeah, yeah I still have it backed up on dat type here somewhere. So I need oh, to really, <laughs> you're better than me because I, I, I lost a bunch of things through the mini transitions, but the fact that you have, that's impressive. I have the dat type and I think 15 years ago, knowing that was going to be difficult to play back, I bought a dat tape recorder as well, you know, SCSI. I have nothing to plug the SCSI cable into to actually use it. It'd be interesting to see whether I could recover anything from it, but it's I'm sitting. I'm pretty sure we could figure out a way to get you a SCSI controller. 
it, it would be interesting to see whether the tape would snap instantly at this point. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Gareth, you never have to worry about showing your age as, as long as I'm here, right? I feel like I'm in good company. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't say that. it. I, yeah. I, I preempted your comment. So Gareth, one of the things that I, I wanted to ask about you and, and your co-founders, you mentioned about taking some of the, the good patterns out of Silicon Valley. And one of the things that I, I like after I met you, you and your co-founders, is that you're, you, run, you run a distributed team, right? Fully distributed? Mm -hmm. Fully distributed. So, yep. was, that a, was that an active choice prior to COVID? And, and how, how has that kind of evolved as the company's grown? No, it absolutely was. So myself and my co-founders had moved away from the Bay Area. We all had kids and picked different cities to live in. And a lot of my career had been spent working from different environments. I worked from the UK for California companies and, and, and other places. And that worked well for me. And even in San Francisco, working for Splunk, I lived across the street from the office. And quite often, I'd just be working from home. And like, if you need me, I'll be there in two minutes. And I'd just yeah. walk across the street. And that became a running joke at the company. But that always seemed to work well. But the thing that was apparent for us is we're either going to be partially distributed or fully distributed. And for me, you need to be all in or all out because the situation I'd had before was I'd be remote, but the rest of the team is in an office. And then you never really feel quite integrated that you miss out on those water cooler conversations. And if everyone's in the office, that's great. But I didn't want to have a, a kind of fractured environment. And we didn't really want the office anyway. We wanted to save the real estate costs of that and maybe fly us all around to different cities and meet up in, instead. And one of my friends was a VP of engineering at Canonical for a good while. And they kind of run the same system where they're, they're much larger and distributed around the globe. But they would pick a really cool city to go to and then they'd fly the whole team there. And it's like, that seems like a nice place to get to if you can do that. But yeah, it turned out to be quite prescient as far as COVID goes. We were already set up to be distributed. And that's been working really well for us. And we're trying to get together at least a few times a year in person. And there's still no substitute for being in person some of the time and having been able to build those relationships and have dinner together and, and all that. But most, many of us in the company have families, we have kids, we've got other commitments and having the flexibility of being at home and hey, if you've got to duck out and take your kid to the doctor or something like, go do it. Don't stress about it. You'll catch up later. It's fine. That flexibility has worked really well for everyone. You just got to hire people that are just committed to, to, to the job and to the task and you, you're going to figure it out. Yeah. It's been working great for us. As a part of that, there's a cultural aspect you have to instill in order to make that happen. Because everybody that didn't have do this when the pandemic, they just ended up with a bunch of Zoom meetings trying to get the in-person going. Did you actively participate to try to create the culture where it was asynchronous versus synchronous, where you're trying to get people to communicate in a different way? What were you trying to do? Was it and how did you go about that? Yeah, that's been more of an evolution in some ways. I think part of it is picking tools that are going to help people. So we don't use Slack, for instance, we use Zulip instead. And that's been really great. My, my hang up with Slack is once the messages scroll off the screen, it's like it never existed for many people, especially if it's inside a thread. And if you're working distributed and asynchronously, you'd have no confidence coming back to work the next day that you haven't missed out on something, which we're trying to address with the product as well, uh, frankly. But the nice thing about Zulu is everything gets put into a topic and you can come back the next day, you can catch up on the topics you care about and you can ignore the ones that you don't. That kind of tooling has been super helpful for us, but also it's a cultural thing too. And that kind of happened a little bit more organically where people have set up 
ad hoc meetings over the week or they've scheduled time for like just hangout time. Like you want to turn up and play board games together at two in the afternoon for an hour or so and go do that. And that seems to have worked out really well for people too, just to get that little bit of social dynamic hmm. going on. And you have to schedule that kind of during work hours and it's part of team building anyway. But as I say, everyone else has kids and things and we've distributed from San Francisco to to Halifax, Nova Scotia. So you have to pick a slot where everyone's actually going to be around as well and they can, or everyone could be included. I think it's a, it's an ongoing process to build that culture and we're still pretty small right now. But I think part of it is just setting the expectation that you're expected to try and find time to catch up with your peers and chat. And if you can't do it around a water cooler, like if you're in an office, you're going to burn a bunch of time practically, right? So it's okay. Burn some time chatting about whatever you need to chat about. But uh, yeah, it's definitely something to keep an eye on and, and figure out what else can we do to support that. But it's so far, it's been good. I thought, no, I, the, Jeremy, I thought when you started talking about culture, we were going to drift back to the, our last recording where we talked about, it actually wasn't the last recording. It was the last episode published where we talked about best effort and how that has to be ingrained in the culture and folks have to be motivated to push past the, the list of things that's in front of you and always ask the next question. And we talked about how some companies don't develop that culture and they end up either fizzing out or failing. So I wanted to ask, and I just wanted to, to get your, gain some of your insight on that and, and how you see the difference between somebody that can thrive at a startup company versus somebody that can thrive at an established company. Yeah. Startups, I don't think they're for everyone. But for some people, they are definitely the thing they should be doing, right? It's, you've got to be the self-starter. You've got to be picking up whatever needs to be picked up. You've got to be into everything, right? If there's a problem comes up, you've got to be saying, I'm going to pick that up. It's not because I'm, if I'm the DevOps person and something else comes up in engineering or in UI. I'm still interested in figuring out how to help with that. I might not have the solution, but I'm at least going to go find the person, chat with them about it or, or you know, whatever. And the reality is like the startups are scrappy. There's just a ton of stuff going on all the time. If they're waiting on me to give them guidance about the next thing they should be doing, then stuff's not going to get done, frankly, because like I'm in and out of meetings and fortunately we look for that quality in people of kind of passion for what they're doing and wanting to learn more. And you're never going to, you never, you can't hire the person who knows all the things they need to know about everything we're trying to build. Because you might find someone who's like great on Kubernetes, but they're not really so strong on Go engineering where I everything in Go yet, but. They really want to learn it. So if you really want to learn it, you're going to learn it. Come in and we'll, we'll give you comments and feedback and help you level up. And we've been fortunate to find some of those people that kind of during the initial interviews, like it, the, even they themselves, I'm not quite sure I'm a person for this job and but I'm really working on learning this and this right now. Yeah, you're going to do fine. <laughs> and they invariably do. So it's trying to find, it's not always the person who's most technically qualified, right? So you definitely find those people who are like, on paper, they should be the one, but are they going to be the kind of the team culture fit and really drive every, level everyone else up as well and try and give that positive vibe to the team? So it's, that positivity is super important, I think. And you just, all you need is one person on the team is giving those negative feedbacks all the time. And, the, and like the, the poor request comment was like, this is a bad idea, period. <laughs> Okay. If it's, this is a bad idea, you might want to look at this or this, or, Hey, I've right. got some other ideas. Like that's positive, but trying to keep that out and keep the positive in. <laughs> and, and one of the things I say to people when I'm hiring, I say this to the interns on the way into it, it's like, this should be fun. 
Like you've got an opportunity to build something like crazy interesting here at the bleeding edge of the technology stack right now. We're not trying to get anyone to work seven days a week and unless something's like really on fire or something, but like step one, try not to let anything get on fire would be nice. <laughs> but otherwise it, it should be fun. You should be like ready to go every morning because this is the thing you love to do. So getting paints a bonus. <laughs> so I smiled through your whole response because I swear it was like we could have taken that whole response and inserted into our best effort episode that we just published and everything you hit on, we talked about. So it was pretty fascinating to hear you hit on all those points. But one of the things, what would you say to somebody that's doesn't never been in a startup? What could they ask themselves to figure out if they liked it? I get the excitement. I get that. But you mentioned the positivity and the go get it, but there's like the amount of people I've advised over the years that lust after this idea of startups. And the amount of them that get into that airfield and the, they're out in six months and they're like, nope, it's not for me. Everything I thought it was, everything great about it, it was on the tin was there, but then there was this six other things. And it just, how do you, we help people to, to recognize that before they make that jump and, and waste the startup's time, waste their own time, but more importantly, so that they can head that entire branch off of their career off and go focus on the parts that they will find enjoyable. I think part of it is how much structure do you actually need, right? I think some people like the structure of, I'm in this space, I only have UI problems to work on, I can go deep in that particular area and that's all I need to do. And, and sometimes in startups, there's not an opportunity to do that for a stretch, right? You might, so if we're trying to get a new release out and problems come up, we need a cross-team response to try and figure that out, then that's the scrappy part of it. And I don't think that's for everyone. To be honest, though, I think sometimes you're not going to figure it out until you've done it. And we've uh, brought a number of co-ops in from University of Waterloo, and their program is super interesting because they get an opportunity to pick the company that they want to work for. And talking to some of those candidates coming in, they're like, they, they want to come work for us. Some of them want to come back for a second term, uh, which is awesome. But the thing I say to them, you might also want to consider going work for a really large company too right. and, and get the contrast in. This is the cheapest time in your career to ever do it. So get the contrast for all these different things, find out what works for you, and then come back to us. <laughs> but yeah, it's I wish I had that when I was younger. You, you mentioned University of Waterloo. We actually have co-op students from there. and It's an amazing program. We have, there's the, Kansas City has a similar program, both for graduates and also a MIC program where you have interns starting at the high school and oh, graduate wow. high school and then follow up all the way through college. And we've had several interns who they're great. And again, they're eager to learn. They want to, they want to expand their knowledge and work on some uh, interesting problems. And we've seen them grow as people in their career from early all the way through. And uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes they... I think we had have one recently resign and it's good and, and bittersweet, right? Someone that's been working with you for that long and they built something awesome. You're seeing them go to another role and hopefully you'll meet them again later in your career, but that's a great program. Yeah. I'm quite envious of, of getting the opportunity to go through that program and have these you know, options open to them. But yeah, we've had some really great students come through and crazy interested and dedicated and just pushing themselves forward. But the successful ones have that startup vibe as well, where they're trying to get in and can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? And you want to say yes. And then sometimes you have to say, actually, we still have to do this and this as well. Like we still have a product to ship here. And again, it's, if they want that more researchy kind of 
dedicated task, then they might be better off at a different company. We try and give them something to focus on because they're usually with us for a limited window. So it's nice to start something and finish it before you leave. That's a good way to wrap up. But we've had some that have come back for a couple of terms. And it's always nice for that second term because they already know the culture. They already know the, the software. They right. already know the code. They can come and land and, and get the ball rolling immediately. But yeah, really great program. Throughout your career, what are some high points, moments that stand out for you, significant achievements, milestones maybe? Wow, that's a great question. I think, oh, there's so many, but um, pretty much every company you work at, there's always some high points in it. So like even going back to SourceForge, like the, the problem I was brought in to solve there was a great one because they were taking off like a rocket and they were doing 160 million downloads a day. This is back in the day when that was a wow. big number and they had this statistics. Still a big system. number. It's still a big, they were in the top 50 biggest sites on the internet at the time, I think. And they had a statistics program running. It was trying to keep track and update the numbers on the website. And they ran it once a day and it was taking 25 hours to run faster. And that's a really interesting problem because you've only got so much compute and you're working with Optron systems, the big old Postgres database. And wow. there's a bunch of Python I came up with and it was some interesting caching in it. And it was up to date with the 30 second latency when I was done with it. And that was nice because you can see the result on the website. You can see the, the numbers ticking up and. So it's like little things like that from a personal level when you're doing these personal projects is nice. But then it's also nice when you get later in the career and you're working with teams and you get the team projects up and running, whether it's at Splunk trying to get like you know, the early incantations of Splunk Cloud up and running or Anki is uh, running the cloud team there and knowing that there's just hundreds of thousands of robots that are using your team's software that you've been working on for months to make sure that voice recognition works and or even for the car racing game, it's a toy, right? That was a big one for us because the big hit for us, we knew what was coming every year was Christmas day. And the, the spike in traffic on Christmas morning was 50 X and it just flattened the graph out that we had over the course of the year oh. into a pixel for Christmas day. But we, the good thing is we know that load is coming. And so we would spend time kind of doing load simulations and planning it out and testing and retesting and. No one wants to get paged on Christmas day. We, we all work towards that. And then Christmas morning, I would go to sleep with a laptop next to me. And then I would open it up Christmas morning. And the first thing I do is refresh the page so I can see the traffic going up before, any, before anything else happens. Then it's all going up and to the right. I'm like, that's great. We've done our job. And you can just imagine these kids unwrapping their, their shiny new toy and it works. That's what you want to deliver. Yeah. I don't know. There's so many over a course of a career, but a lot of it is just like finding really great people to work with and planning out something and executing it and actually seeing it come together and ship and shipping is always a big thing for me. I was going to say real quick before I'll let Jeremy, I always thought that number on slash or on uh, source words was fake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kudos. Yeah. That was straight off the Apache logs. <laughs> oh, wow. Text parsing. Good fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask. Knowing that a product is going to release, it's going to be in somebody's hand. Did that change the stress leading up to those? Because like you said, 50X improvement of your stats, everybody's going to hit it on the day when it's their big day. How did you prepare? How did you think about that? And, and I know it was great when it happened, but I guarantee you that lead up was stressful. You tried to prepare as much as you possibly can, but what did you do as the person responsible, not just the technology, the responsible for the team? making sure they were taken care of, making sure that they were thinking about this. Hey, it's really important, but it's not nuclear war, but <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Go to sleep. Enjoy your family too. 
For sure. And you can only control the things that you can control. This is all running on the cloud. If Amazon has a multi-region failure on Christmas Day, there's nothing we can do about that, right? We've done everything we can to prepare for that. And really, I think the trick to sleeping well is thinking through, you've done everything you can. We've run all the simulations we can. We've scaled up the database cluster to like twice what we think it could possibly need to be on Christmas Day. And we'll run that for a week or two afterwards. And the reality was that our stack was not that complicated. And one, one of the things is, one of the things I've always tried to do is keep things absolutely as simple as possible. The more I can take away from a stack, the better, right? So I don't want to wake up at three in the morning and try to figure out how these pieces fit together. I want it to be boring when the interesting parts of your work are not in that. They're in the, the algorithm has to be there to make this actually work a certain way or, you know, how you hook these pieces up, but. Boring is better, <laughs> frankly. Always. If you're on call, it's always better. <laughs> always. always. How, how do you teach that to, to your interns, to, to, to new or more junior employees? I think in an ideal world, you put them on call. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I, I think the no, earlier you no go through that process, the better. Touche. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's the, you'll only do RMRF you know, slash once and... We all have those conversations. Oh, sorry, those stories. Everyone's been through it, but the earlier you can get through it in your career, the better. I think if you are, if you do have a team that's shipping software that needs to be 100% reliable 24-7, then you've got to have some sort of on-call rotation to accept responsibility for that. And I know I've certainly seen teams where they write the code, they toss it over the fence, and then some other team's responsible for handling it and paging and filing the tickets for it. And it's, it's tough to be motivated to fix those issues if you're not feeling the pain of it. As an engineer, if you get woken up at 3 a.m., you're probably going to figure out how to fix it the next day and then it's done. It won't happen again. You'll fix the run book, whatever it may be. But I don't know of the shortcut to that, really. You can tell the war stories. <laughs> what about the, I, one of the things that, that stood out, what, what you said was, is make sure things are, are boring. I think as technologists, we all get caught up in the fancy shiny thing, maybe a new library or a new programming language. You mentioned Go being, or at least part of the backend, and you mentioned Python. You have, you have to learn a lot to, to know when to make the decisions to use the newer technology or to, or, or to not. And, and that's something I haven't figured out how to teach it yet, other than time. I think it's, I think it is time. And I really love the new technology and I love all the new shiny things. And we've used plenty of it in the stack that we're building now. And we picked up on on Svelte for our kind of front-end UI oh. framework instead of React, for instance. And I went I agonized on that early on because React's the obvious choice, right? It's easier to hire for that. Right. It's mature, et cetera. There's certain difficulties with using that particular framework that I was keen to avoid. If there was something better on the horizon that was going to be the next thing, I'd rather catch it early and be on that wave if possible, especially as a startup anyway. And I came across Svelte and I, I was like, this... I have a feeling, I have a feeling this is the next thing. And it's like, okay, I've got to play with it. I hadn't hired a UI engineer yet. So it's like, no one can argue with me yet. So <laughs> I built out the first version of the UI that we'd prototyped in, in Svelte. This really feels good, but I don't know. So I'm going to hire a UI engineer and say, you've got to evaluate it. You're going to have to convince me not to use it. If you can convince me, we'll ditch it. We'll move to React or something else. Just, you've actually got to support this thing because it's your day-to-day -day job. So if this is not the thing, don't. Don't use it. But that so far has been a really great stack to use, for instance, and picking up on things like linear for ticketing and, and all sorts of other things. And one of the 
one of the nice things about starting a company from scratch is having that freedom to to pick those tools that you think are going to be the differentiators for how you can move quicker or just actually have a more enjoyable workday, frankly, because just using linear versus Jira alone makes my day happier. No I, I one's there it. to argue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least early. Yeah. I got to imagine just uh, to pull on John's question a little bit, the teaching, how do you teach that? It's over time and, and through experience, right? And it goes back to the point you made before where you have that tough conversation with the intern that's just started at your company and you're like, go to an established company, right? Go someplace else and try it out because at your company, they're going to get a limited exposure to a certain amount of technology. So I think that's where you bite that bullet and allow that the little birdie to fly out of the nest and hope that the birdie comes back later. And when the birdie comes back, it's it's had that experience and it's learned a lot more and it's able to make those technological decisions. It'd be great if they brought that knowledge back with them and help level up the team yeah. again as well. But yeah, you have to play the long game with, with kind of recruiting and people and the industry is, tends to be smaller than people think it is as well. It's interesting oh, yeah. how often people come back around again that from previous jobs and from a decade prior, they pop back up and that's really nice when that happens. But I think there's a finite pool of really great people in the spaces that you want to, to talk to at any moment in time and or at least ones that you fit well with perhaps, but yeah, it's a much smaller world than people appreciate. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So on the flip side of that, what's like a low point in the career, you know, obviously dot-com boom, things like that, but <laughs> what would you say? How'd you navigate it and what were some setbacks? Yeah, dot com was interesting. That was earlier, at least that was earlier in my career and less impactful on me as I went through that. And I think on paper for a minute, I was doing very well as a 20 something year old. And a minute later, I, I was back to zero, but zero was a lot better than the number that a lot of other people ended up with, which is far less than zero by the time they were dealing with taxes and things. I count that as a net win and very educational on the way through. I don't know. In terms, I, I feel like I've been very fortunate. I, Given my sheer lack of planning in terms of how I've tried to map out my career, I just follow the things that seem interesting to me as opportunities come up and then jump from that. And I don't jump very often. I've been fortunate that the things I've had the opportunity to work on have all been really interesting. Obviously, Splunk worked out really well as a company goes. I didn't, didn't really see that at the beginning. I joined that company just because I really liked the product and I really liked the bunch of people that I met who were just incredibly driven to build the thing at the time. So I don't know. I'm... I. I would have a hard time thinking like what are the really negative points because I'm not sure I've really had any. Maybe I'm just blessed <laughs> that way, but we're fortunate now to get the opportunity to move on. Obviously, Un Unky, I will say Unky wrapping up was hard. Uh, we, we ended up with one week's notice at the end of that company and we had the most incredible CEO who was just passionate and dedicated and driven and did absolutely everything possible to try and get that, that company through. And it just ran out right at the last second. Actually had the rug pulled out from under at the last minute. And that's tough to watch, right? Because you, as bad as it is for us as employees to basically have a week's notice, we feel really bad for him and his co-founders for the effort they put into that, that company. And like, we all wanted to see it through. We all knew what was coming next and what the potential was for it. And to not be able to finish the thing that you started, I think was probably one of the hardest things and maybe in my career so far. Again, lessons to learn, things to take away, play it forward. <laughs> I, I found my histories much the same. It, those down aren't really down. They are learning experiences. You, you, as long as you're working with good people and it doesn't matter how bad it gets, if the people are good, no matter what, you're going to come out at the other side 
ahead and enjoy the experience. And, and that's been my whole career is how do I find good people? And it sounds like you've done a lot of the same. That, I think that's been my universal filter from looking anywhere. It's like, who are the people? Also, you want interesting technology and interesting problems to work on, but you really want great people to work with that you're going to, who wants to spend a, a 10 hour day working at a job where you just don't hate the people. And I think this is one of the other things I often say to the co-op as well, if they're asking for advice, like, if you want some advice, you're going to have an opportunity to go find a job somewhere that pays infinite money and potentially, but you only have so much time in your career to work on interesting things and with interesting people. And how much money do you actually need to be happy? And even most of the engineers in this industry are fortunate to be you know, reasonably well compensated. There's a balance there between income and happiness, I think, and I'll trade one for the other any day. <laughs> I think and those experiences very... with... Okay, sorry. Just, I was just gonna say wise words. Do that. Yeah. Those experiences with those good people, they pay dividends down the road, right? Whether it's personal relationships that you've developed or like you mentioned before, Gareth is a small industry, people come back around. So I, yeah, if you get a chance, go listen to our previous episode. You're going to be like, man, wow. Like I hit on a lot of the points that these guys talked about. I'm, I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Splunk. You were one of the early employees. Are there any stories going from basically a startup all the way you were there through the IPO, right? Through the IPO. Yeah. Let's see. Stories I can share publicly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really interesting company culture-wise, very different from from VA or Anki, like super different. I don't know how, what the best way is to describe it, but that company, again, I was there a little bit early in my career, but we'd be out on pub crawls and the team was together and whether it's beer pong in the office or whatever else, but everyone's in it together. And, but for a while I was living out, when I first joined the company, I was actually out in Florida. So I'd have, uh, I think we we're 30, 40 people at that point in time. And the CEO would be on Skype with me at midnight in, in Florida. And there's, you know, some stories from that, but. It's nice, right? Because everyone's just super driven and I used to work crazy hours anyway. At least I used to be a night hour. I'd prefer to work way late into the night and wind my zone and, and crank out code that way. But yeah, that's culturally very interesting. Amazing what they actually managed to get done. Some days I look at it as surprising they managed to get anything done given that <laughs> the way the company functioned. They know exactly but... what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, I think, Worked. I worked quite a bit with somebody. I think overlapped Andre. Um, he worked with. I worked with him quite a bit, and so did John. Wonderful person. One of my favorite people to work with when he was at Bloomberg with us. So, I think you probably worked with him. I think. Uh, I think I did. I'm not, that name sounds familiar. I will say there's a reason I'm not in sales is because I'm absolutely terrible with names. <laughs> if you ask me about some code from 15 years ago, I'll probably remember it. But people, I'm really terrible with. <laughs> That's why we put our names on the screen. That's smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little bit on a lighter note, what are some of your hobbies? What do you do to relax? Inspiration? This is the challenge, right? Because I've been writing software for fun since I was 10 years old and I still <laughs> do it for fun now. So I'm like, on the weekend, that's what I want to do. It's like, I want to write some more code that's like not the product, but it's, I always have a list of things I want to get up and running or fix or improve or whatever. And one of the joys for me for software is you see a problem, 
you have the ability to go and write the solution for it. And it's tough if you're an architect, it's like, oh, I wish I could go build that building. It takes a bit to go and actually make that happen. But for <laughs> us, hey, I'm just going to knock out a script and I want to hook up, I don't know, GPT in an interesting way or do something else with it. Just go do it. So I, I continue to, to go down that path, whether I, I should or I, I shouldn't, but frankly, I enjoy it. But I've been trying to find some other things. Like I a little bit got into 3D printing last year on the assumption that I would bring my son into it as well and get him brought along, but he's been less interested than me and I've been doing all the stuff with it. <laughs> the CAD design and how does that work? And that's not really my wheelhouse. I'm learning new things there. But no, I need to find some hobbies that are not attached to the screen. <laughs> really, in my youth, it was more photography based and I can surely get back into that. Maybe one day. I don't know. I think what I need is a hobby buddy. I need someone, you need someone to push you. Because if you're really some trying golf. to get something started again. You ever golf. want to play golf? Yeah, yeah. Well, just talk, uh, one of my uh, colleagues here at Atelier was, is also big into golf. We were just chatting about that and I've never played. I can't imagine I'd have the coordination for it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think of how that would go. But something like that, though, something that gets you outdoors, I think was a, would be the thing to do. Yeah. You mentioned your son. I've been trying to get my son to do different things and it's been on the podcast a fun bit. But I found that Factorio, it's a video game that's basically programming, but for a video game is really fun and it's a in we got my son to the point where he is doing for loops he's doing automations oh, wow. but he's doing them with a graphical interface and he's doing them in a way to try to build these entire mega cities and he's starting to do templates and meta programming and programming the programming so i don't know how your older son is my son's 14 and he loves it about guessing 10 to 12 hours a week now of time and it's he's he's really starting to figure out how these things fit together it's quite awesome to see plus it's fun to talk about nice to be able to talk to your son about something that you're interested in because i don't care about fortnite and i can't ever <laughs> care about fortnite this is my challenge he's super into minecraft for instance and minecraft is is great so i was trying to find some of the programming hooks into there and i have a hard time no, I don't care about Minecraft. I just can't spend hours in Minecraft personally. But if I can code something around it, that, that would be cool. He got it into Scratch for a while. I was pushing towards the Scratch direction and he really got interested in that. And I think one of the summer camps he did last summer, we were doing some kind of game development based around that. So maybe more of that, but I'm definitely have to check that out because yeah, definitely has the mind for it and definitely is motivated to make games and we were having, he's been having whole conversations on ChatGPT recently about coming up with game design. There's a whole story I could tell you about how I've realized what the future of chat or what the future of child interaction with these AIs looks like the other day, but it's a little bit, a little bit terrified me. Actually, so. Tell us, I'd love that. I'd love, I, I think that's an awesome story. What yeah. I've been keeping my kids a little, you should know how to use it, but don't treat it like a person, treat it like a computer. That, that That's it. And obviously there's a lot of technology in, in, in my household here and I'm big on at least knowing how to, these things exist and how to use them. Okay, we're going to go look that up. And that was much harder when I was a kid. And ChatGPT now is another tool, right? It's like something else you can use. And, and so recently, so for Christmas, he's really been getting into Pokemon cards and collecting Pokemon cards now. And so we've been using ChatGPT to kick off some of the research about that, what different types, what they mean. He wants to create his own series of Pokemon cards and, and coming up with that and asking ChatGPT for suggestions and things. This past week, I've been home and I've had meetings to do and he's like, can I have the iPad so I can talk to ChatGPT about this? And so, sure, you can go look that up. But like The nice thing about it, it's a pretty safe tool to use, unlike handing Google to an eight-year-old. Yeah. 
And I already have the system prompt configured with it. So it knows from the start, like who I am and what I'm into and my position. And I have an eight-year-old son. And if I'm talking about Minecraft, you can assume it's my son and this is his age. And so it already steers the conversation in a useful fashion. But he, he took the iPad and he's away for a couple of hours or so. And by the end of a couple of hours, it had become his best friend. And so it was literally him taking pictures of things because now it's multimodal, right? So you can take pictures of things and saying, hey, here's this logo I did. What do you think of it? And of course, ChatGPT is like super enthusiastic and positive and instant response, very affirmative. And so he's taken that and then saying, what should I do next? And it's giving suggestions. Then he's, I want to reorganize my room. And then ChatGPT said, that sounds like a great idea to clean up your workspace and you could do this. Okay, let's do that. And back and forth and by, by the end of the day, it was like pages and pages. Whatever profit OpenIO is going to make on me for the month has been driven into the dirt from that one afternoon. <laughs> but he then described it as his friend. And it's not a friend, it's a toaster. No, it's my friend. But he realizes it's not real, right? He realizes it's a machine. Sometimes it generates an error message or something. He hits the regenerate button. His argument was, a dog isn't a person. That can be a friend. My stuffy over here isn't a person. That can be my friend. Why can't this be my friend? I'm like, that's a compelling argument. I'm not sure it's a good, good response for you. I wasn't um, prepared for that. Yeah, this is the thing. He's coming up with good arguments, which I appreciate. But it's, I think maybe this is a glimpse of how it's going to head, right? You're going to end up with these, we can already see with character AI of people using these things for therapy and such. And is this going to become a, a kid's friend at some point? Maybe. I think the challenge with it right now and in its current form is it's not human-like. It doesn't get bored. It's instant response. But you could potentially address that. Maybe, maybe that'll happen. But I actually think you have to. Yeah, let's put it this way. He didn't get free reign access to it the next day. So. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the the bill you were going to get from OpenAI, and I, I chuckle because the irony of we started off with you talking about taking your family's modem and you're running <laughs> up their bill. It's coming around full circle now. You'll end up yeah, okay. I was paying per query at, at commercial rates for the, his day there. It probably would have run into hundreds of dollars. I, I can't even imagine, but they earned my 20 bucks for that month. <laughs> my daughter, we gave her like a old, an old iPhone, very old and, but it's completely turned off except for the Wi-Fi, and she's able to uh, watch YouTube kids and text us. But we found probably about six months ago that she's watches a lot of YouTube kids and the, there's a bunch of different videos, a bunch of different creators. We talk a whole lot about creators, but she has gigabytes of video of her talking to her fans. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> for me, that's just ammo for when she eventually gets married, but it's, it's quite interesting. She's, she, we didn't teach her how to record it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I hit a lot of that stuff on the phone. And so, yeah, she's, she records videos to her, for her fans, records videos to her, uh, her family members as well. But it's interesting to see just how kids just the imagination now crossing over with technology. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is influential, right? And it's true when we were kids too, of whatever TV shows or whatever else we're into, we want to mimic and, and it's super influential. And I think it's the same now with YouTube and and whatever. And you, if you see those very positive creators that you're watching on YouTube, you want to get in on the act, right? You want to feel like I could do that too. And there is some creativity to be had there. You just want to be part of the story. So, so uh, one of the things that, as we were talking, that, that kind of reminded me something I found 
was AI, something called an AI dungeon. Have you seen this application on the phone? I have not. So it's like a, it's like an old dungeon crawler, text-based memo or mud or a moosh or all the old things back in the day. Interesting seeing that cross now with large language models. What kind of technologies or trends do you see now happening again? What's this the second or third time uh, that a new technology has taken over uh, development, uh, product development in our kind of industry? What do you see having, obviously AI is going to have an impact. How do you see it evolving? Yeah, I think the the interesting thing for me, there's been so many technology hype cycles over the years, right? There's just one, one thing after another, but, and you know, like this is the next hype cycle and it's going to burn out. And, but the two big ones in my career have been number one, the internet, and then number two, Linux. And this kind of feels like it's on the same level as that, or maybe potentially more. And we don't, I don't think I quite know where it heads because when we founded the company, we knew that these language models were going to start to become commoditized. There was a bunch of things you could do with them, whether it was just summarizing documents and embeddings and semantic search and such. I don't know that I really saw ChatGPT being uh, come up as rapidly as it did or that it had the potential. I'm not sure anyone really knew. I'm not sure OpenAI knew when they actually launched it as to what it was going to potentially turn into. And I don't think we've really figured out what that's going to be next. Where does it go and what else can you do with it? Even now, people are still figuring out what else they could do with these language models and even trying to get the prompts to do more interesting things and what it can reason about. It's just, we really are on the bleeding edge and the number of applications for it, I think infinite, but in some ways, all the focus is on the language models, but that's only one aspect of machine learning and AI, right? All this other stuff is still going on, all this other research and whether it's images or voice or Every other potential application of machine learning is still there and still moving along at breakneck speed, but that's not getting talked about so much. And all that's going to have a similar level of impact on the environment we're in. And when you start marrying those things together, which is now starting to see right with the modal, multimodal aspects of these things, like that's when it's really going to start you know, getting interesting. And even with ChatGPT, for my son to be able to upload a picture and it can look at that picture and understands what's in it and give a creative response to it. And it can then turn that into a new picture and follow on. So then that's just one narrow slice of it is going to be tough to keep up with. It's already tough to keep up with, but I'm not sure I have a good prediction as to where that heads next other than I want to be along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. Do you think multi-models expand and, and turn into the thing that kind of starts to differentiate some of these services from each other? Like how much fidelity the, the additional capabilities have? I don't know if it differentiates so much. Again, you come back to the commoditization of it because one what one person has, the next person has too. And in many aspects for me, it's another tool, right? It's, it's not so much the technology, it's what you do with it. So for ourselves, like we, we needed a full text engine, right? But that's been solved multiple times over. We don't need to invent that thing from scratch and build it. We want to leverage it in a way that other companies aren't doing and apply some, some common sense to like, how do you hook this in and how do you make it more of a holistic product? And the way, way I look at it is we have one more really powerful tool here. How do we integrate that with everything else that we're doing to level it up and, and do something else with it? But the models are moving so fast. So I don't want to tie our product to one model here because and we're not building our own model from scratch because that's not a race we want to be in either. So they're going to continue moving and hopefully that helps our product get better as a result because the tool's getting better. 
I think being able to pull in some of those multimodal aspects as that improves will become important to us, but it'll become important to everyone. One of the things that drives me nuts about the current hype cycle is that I've found very few uses that are truly beyond the human interaction of what ChatGPT has been. I can envision them and I can see their potential, but I haven't seen them tangibly come together. And so maybe this is a time to talk about your company. Maybe it's a time to talk about just something else, but that's the part I'm waiting to happen. The only people that I see doing something, I think creative with it right now is Wolfram right now with Mathematica and their integration and how they're trying to get it going back and forth and bi-directional between symbolic execution, LLM, so that you can talk to it, you'll get Wolfram code back. Outside of that, I haven't been seeing anything truly innovative that makes somebody's life better or makes working with a product better. So maybe that's what you guys are doing, but that that's what I'm interested in is what can be done to make things better besides my chatbot is an AI before it gets turned over to a human because the chatbot got lost. Yeah, I think a lot of companies right now are taking a very reactive approach. Like they feel like they have to hook it up somehow and just because it's becoming table stakes, but that doesn't necessarily make your product better. It may make it worse, but it helps from a marketing angle to say you can you have it and you're doing it. And if you don't have it, then you can't sell your product anymore. That will work for a while. <laughs> The, yeah. but it's not the thing I'm interested in. And so we've spent a lot of time at our company talking about that and I'm adamant as to, I don't want to just bolt this into the product. We built the core engine to support these models in the first place, but really it's not about the models. It's about the user experience. So I keep coming back to for our product, if I'm an employee at work, how does this actually make my work day better? How do I become more effective here with this thing? And I don't just want it sitting there in a taskbar, in a toolbar, and it's being sold, but it's not actually useful to me or it's too slow or whatever. It needs to integrate and become part of a product overall. And that requires the bigger picture thinking about it really. Um, and the other aspect of it, I think will change is we're starting to see the LLMs use tools now, right? Be able to run a web search and, and do something with it, or be able to use some other tool and do something with it, whether it's executing code or whatever else. And I think we'll see a lot more of that going forwards as well. So that will increase its power. And once you start completing that loop as well, as like it gets the data back and then decides from that, I'm going to do the next thing. And I don't know where that leads, but it might be to Terminator. I don't know, but. But for us, it's that holistic approach to like, how do we integrate this in a way that actually makes sense and not just because we're expected to. And we're spending a lot of time on that at the moment. So I'll give you the summary of what we're actually building yeah. and why we're building it. So the genesis of the product back in 2019, we were thinking about problems that we wanted to solve or, or things that we had come across that had yet to be solved well. And. One of the things for us working at these you know, different companies is just the explosion of tools, like all the different places where information could live in a company now and how hard it was to find anything now that were really living everywhere. And, and even just the simple things of trying to find the project notes from, or a team notes from a meeting from a few days ago, when it could be a Google Doc or it could be a PDF in Box or it could be any one of a number of places, but it's in there somewhere and Confluence, will, you know, Confluence in particular is it's tough to find things in. and this was just even at Anki, which is only a few hundred people, it was hard. And you end up bugging people on Slack. Do you remember seeing this thing from last week? And they're like, yeah, do you know where it is? No. <laughs> you know? And the thing that struck me is there'd been so many attempts at solving that particular problem over the years. And obviously none of them have really stuck because 
everyone we spoke to was, doesn't have a solution in place or they're trying to craft something custom in-house. And we spent, we, we talked to hundreds and hundreds of companies trying to figure out, is this a real problem? And this goes back to one of the anti-patterns that we're trying to avoid. As I've seen over, the, over my career, a lot of kind of engineers go through their career, they go through an IPO or something. The next thing they want to do is scratch an itch. They, they have an idea for building something that's going to be fun to build. They build it and then they're trying to find a customer to sell it to, which is it's such an anti-pattern. It's like, you, great, you have an idea, but you need to figure out, is this actually something that's going to be useful? And you need the feedback before you build it so you can tweak your idea and then build it. And then you waste less time you, and, and hopefully you're successful. So we spent a lot of time just getting that feedback from as many companies as we could talk to about, have you tried something before? What happened? Why didn't it work? Do you still need it? What do you need that's different? We're just trying to get all that in there. And what was clear is no one has a good solution to this <laughs> problem. So we were really thinking about that. And I think that there's a few things that struck me. There's a whole bunch of things I could say about why this is tractable now versus it wasn't before in terms of everything's in the cloud and you've got Okta and common identity and stuff like that. And we can do permissions. You have to know. You do want that private content. I do want my email and my DMs and things like I want the complete picture. So you have to get permissions to work. But it's not enough just to have search. It's not really a search problem. It's a kind of team knowledge problem. Like how, how do I work better with this kind of sea of knowledge I have if I'm in a 5,000 person company or a 50,000 person company? And it's not even just the knowledge. It's who do I even need to go and talk to about this thing? I can't even find the person, never mind the thing. So you need to look at it holistically and search is part of it. Maybe that's really the underlying thing, but it's even the question of, I was out for a couple of days and I've come back to work and what did I miss while I was away is hard. It's like, why do I have to go and ask everyone about that? I've got all this computing here. Why can't you tell me what I missed? What do I do with it when I found it? I've got, I found, I'm on call. I got paged. I found this Splunk dashboard and the pull request and this other stuff, but where do I put it? How do I collaborate around that? How do I write the root cause analysis later? It's like, I need to put that somewhere. How do I make that an artifact? Why can't, as I'm putting this stuff together, why can't the system tell me, here's some other stuff you didn't find. Here's the ticket from three months ago. It looks very similar to the things you're adding right now. <laughs> so like, it's like, it's just pulling the threads together in something that's more holistic as a tool here. And engineering is one of our initial focuses here. Of like, how do we help engineering teams be more successful with all this information and, and pulling these threads together? Because you are working in code repos and tickets and conversations you've had about those tickets are in there somewhere too. And it'd be great if you can find that stuff as well and, and find the people you need to talk to. So we wanted to tackle that. But the thing that we hit on is with previous products, if you are looking for information, they did a good job at surfacing the high signal stuff, like the all hands meeting and stuff like that. But if you did a search like project notes, they defaulted to the Google style page rank algorithm for trying to rank stuff, which works great for Google, at least when it launched, obviously it's very different today. But if you search for project notes, a lot of those documents have three links pointed to them. They're all edited last week. They all have a few people working on them. All the signals are basically the same. The only thing that's different really is the, is the people that are working on those things. And so we really wanted to focus on the people aspect and figure out who you are, who you're working with, how that changes over the course of your day, and then use that as a social graph to influence the ranking of the results and say, okay. It's your information. It's the information your team is working with. You still want all the big picture stuff too. You still want to find everything in the organization potentially, but what do you need day to day? What are you trying to get into? Find the thing, get back out again, get back to work. It's, it's that, right? It's the stuff that's proximate to me on this graph here. And so using that as one of the kind of primary signals to help you find information and work better with it. But that then becomes really useful 
in this bigger picture now of working with these language models, because the more information you can give to a language model about you and who you are and who you work with and stuff like that, then the better job it's going to do in terms of helping you be effective with this information too. So it starts to pull things together in a way I think is really interesting. So we've been, that, that's what we're trying to solve. We're just trying to make you more effective. I got to jump in. You're going to take my job. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, what my, I was thinking though. <laughs> my, my value proposition has been largely build a graph of, hey, I don't need to know the, the search results. I know how to find the teams, the organization, the structure, the graph of how those things to pull information out, to be able to go into an organization and be able to go, great, I met people. Now I figured out how they were. I see they wrote notes. I go, all right, I saw that one and build that mental pattern of how they can produce stuff and then use that to extract history over time to get a bigger and larger picture. That's an awesome perspective. I can see how you're doing that is that you're trying to give, I'm going to call it a very localized graph around a piece of work while it's being produced and then how it's interacted with. And then you can use that and feed that into an element to actually to ask intelligent questions like, Hey, I need to know about a meeting, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't need a keyword search. It needs to know about what was the outcomes and what people did with those meeting notes afterwards. Oh. This person went and did 65 Git check-ins and pushed a bunch of code. And the result was what you were talking about, which was a change to the menu dropdown. Getting to that history has been a nightmare for me because I'd find the Git, I'd, I'd find that and get, but then I'd have to go find the meeting notes and then find out where it was. The, and then eventually two days later, you have a PM and you go, oh yeah, we wanted this from this stakeholder. That's what I was trying to get to. Right. And I think in many companies, you find some people are like the, the supers, right? They're connected to everyone. They know everything. And everyone turns to that person to try and find, how do I get to this? And that becomes their entire job. They just, they could be doing a million other things, but actually they're just connecting people with people and all the time. I was going to say, I, I think that's all, all of us on here at one point in our career. <laughs> I, I call those people the centers of gravity because every just inherently things start orbiting around them because they direct, they pull, they gravitate. And it's not because they're necessarily doing all the work, but because they're orchestrating all the work. I don't think those people go away, but it'd be nice to take some of the, some of the way off the kind of questions that don't, you don't need to be answering because it should be easier to find that stuff and, and collaborate around those things. People are the, the fabric of the company, they're the fabric of the knowledge, right? And so it's this intersection, like everyone always thinks about a document graph and this, this document links to this document, but it's also- I think also, you got it right. It's the people graph. It's really the intersection of those two things, right? So even if you're thinking about a project or your pull request or whatever, it's like they, they all have a set of people in common. And especially if you're thinking about a project from maybe two years ago, those people aren't actually at the company anymore, but the fabric of the communication those people had is still there in the data. You just can't get at it. Now it's really hard to get to if you're like, hey, can you go resurrect that thing from two years prior? It's like it's in there somewhere and you might be able to find the the one document, but can you find the conversations that happen around that document? Good luck. <laughs> so we think we can have a really big impact on helping with that. And I say just being more, more effective with information overall. And these language models are another tool to bring to bear on that really. But as you say, it's the, it's the smart application of it. You want not just the brute force, shove everything into a model or try and fine tune a model and ask questions around it, which you can't do anyway, because it doesn't understand permissions. Yeah. You end up with a, a bunch of other technical solutions for how, how you do that. But 
we're on the bleeding edge, right? No one's really figured out how to do this stuff well yet, but we think we have a you know pretty good crack at uh, making significant progress there. But we really look at it from from the employee's stance first and then back out from that, like then to how do you solve it technically, not the other way around. So we're trying to be very deliberate about how we tackle it. Super fun. <laughs> I mean, I can see how it's valuable from somebody like me, but how are you selling it? What's the pitch? Are you saying it as an efficiency? Are you selling it as making communications better? I can see all of the logical arguments for those, but what is your pitch? And, and then from that pitch, like, how do you go forward? One of our challenges is there's so many things you could do. Once you have this mm -hmm. data in one place and you have the emissions around it and you have this graph, like the number of questions you could answer from that subsequently are, are frankly infinite. So for us, it's a question of where do you want to start? And right now we're focusing on those engineering teams helping those engineers be more productive. And especially if you're, if you are on call, you do get paged and you are trying to figure out what just happened here and time is money. The faster you can figure that out and get the right people involved and the better off you are. And I think there's a bunch of those kind of use cases in engineering for just increasing productivity alone, right? And just reducing some of the friction and frustration around being an effective engineer is a huge win for many organizations. But even especially large organizations, right? We've actually, it's not just one team. You've got lots of teams spread out throughout the company. And I think, for example, one of the things that tends to come up is you've got one team working on a problem. You've got another team working on the same problem. They've got no idea that they're both working on the same problem because they're not really connected to each other. And, and how do you surface that? Now for us, so for us, it's we have the ability to let you add things to collections, for instance, right? So as you're finding things, maybe you're interested in machine learning. So you've started a machine learning collection, you started to put things in it, and are suggesting more things for you to put in it. But as you're doing that, we know now semantically that other things that they, other people in the company are doing are also similar to that. So we can start suggesting to you, did you know that this other person over here is also doing something very similar to what you're interested in? So otherwise completely invisible to you, right? But we can now start to surface that for you. And again, you're leveling up the productivity of your teams and helping them be more efficient and effective. Hey, I'm, I'm working with this problem. Someone over here is already working on it. Just go pick their brain on it at the very least and, and do that too. It's just a myriad of ways to really help engineering teams right now. But you know, ultimately you can see this translates to many other teams, different types of teams yes. in the company as you move forward and to so many other value propositions we can deliver once you get it up and running and, and we want to build out, but. For right now, we're focusing on this slice because obviously that's near and dear to our hearts anyway, as, uh, as engineers ourselves. And yeah, we're seeing some early success there in terms of people using it every day and becoming their kind of default go-to tool. Obviously it is for ourselves. We use it internally as our default search engine <laughs> everywhere. We don't try and search across Notion and Zulu, but you just go to this thing and find what you want. Yeah. Uh, to have something that finally works is great. Right? <laughs> that's. The reason why I asked how you're selling it, because I can see how it's going to be particularly great to start with engineers is also what you're doing yourself. I see it even more valuable for the large organizations that aren't engineers, yes. where you don't have as much textual doc. I'm going to use my favorite example in here, lawyers. <laughs> oh my God, lawyers. They have, they put their fingers on so many documents in so many different ways throughout the day to be able to understand that and be able to do that for an organization that hires a lot of lawyers. I can only imagine the value. I don't even know how to make that valuable. I just can tell you that they're inefficient. They're duplicating a lot of work and I guarantee you it would be useful to have your tool. 
and they're expensive. <laughs> so anything you can do to very... increase efficiency there is again a, a big win. Yes. Yeah. We have so many of those examples and we, this is one of the reasons that we're really focusing on those large enterprises because we just see the, the value so much more at those large companies than a hundred person company. If you're only one or two degrees removed from anyone in the company, it's not so difficult to, to get access to that information, but you could be many degrees removed in a 50,000 person org. And as you say, whether it's lawyers or security use cases or I don't know, on and on, we have a whole list of things we, we really want to dig into, but, but we're, we're trying to come up with you know, something that works for engineering you know, right now, you can put to work today, but we don't want to limit to that moving forwards. And the platform is built to scale to 100,000 person company, 150,000 person company, whatever. And you know, I think one of the other things that we're really focused on is presenting that in a kind of a safe manner for companies as well. There's a lot of concern about where's your IP going. This is really talking about all your company's IP, right? Do you want to send that out of your company to another company to go index and, and host elsewhere or leak it out in other ways? And, and maybe even comes down to, you, do you want to send that out to an LLM that's not hosted by you as well? And I think some companies are fine with that and will have to make their decisions around that. But this one of the reasons we figured out early on from all these com conversations we had that large companies really want to control this technology. They really want to deploy it in-house. They want to lock it down and Basically, we have no access to any of it at all. And that may include hosting models. So we're trying to be model agnostic within reason as well. But again, it's a tool, right? That's another big part of our, I think, proposition of like, how can you scale this up? And, and looking at it from a long term, right? it's, it's okay to solve a problem for now, but this is a one, two, three, four year stretch, right? Large enterprises are looking at long-term solutions here and this is just the beginning for this product and where we're heading with it. We really want to have a long trajectory and work with these large enterprises to build it out. And I'm going to tell you, it's got one of the most awesome moats once you're in there. I don't know how you would oh, ever yeah. remove it. Can't say we thought about that at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not at all. You mean everybody depends on this to get find things and discover things? And oh yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome place to be. The way I, I look at it is, it, it's like how Slack became so dominant in the messaging. I mean, pre-Slack, we're using AIM and Skype and all these other tools and Slack, hip chat prior to Slack even. And, and when Slack came along and, and did a really good job at getting into these companies and becoming the de facto way that you communicate. And I kind of wonder if I went into some companies now and said, hey, we're turning off Slack tomorrow. What's your reaction to that going to be? It's going to be a challenge, right? Or Teams. I wonder whether this is the same thing in the long term here. Like you, this is just the way you're going to want to find and work with information. It should be. It should already be here. It should already be a thing that exists, frankly. But the technology is now at a point where it's going to become really interesting and really compelling to help you get through your workday. And, and you're not going to want to do without it at some point. Nor should you. <laughs> How as you... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I was just going to make a comment that as you were going through the use cases in my head, I am like, check. Check, mm -hmm. check, check, and check again. Like I, I see value in this product for uh, the myriad of reasons that, that issues that we have and, and use cases that we can benefit from. Yeah, very interesting. I have a question, and it's a more of an adversarial one, is why are people and organizations going to allow you to crawl their data? They're going, you're going to, good example is Confluence, Jira, GitHub. At some point in time, you'll be their competitor. 
What are you thinking about that? And are you planning for that? Because inherently they're going to grow concerned that they're not going to be the point of interaction for their customers. Yeah, I think the value for those tools doesn't go away. You still want those tools. We're not becoming another place to store information. And that, that was one of the big things we decided at the, at the start. There's been previous products like it's, it does search and all this stuff and it's a wiki, right? And so it's yeah. a, you put all your stuff in our wiki and you can also search the other things. And I think that's making the problem worse, not better. So we really want you to keep your data where it is. And then maybe, maybe a lot of companies are using GitHub and they're using GitLab, right? Or they're using Confluence and they're using some other tools, right? And teams are going to do what teams are going to do. So working with the realities of, of data in the company as it is, and really we're just making those tools more effective. And search has always been a second-class citizen in pretty much every tool. Conference is a prime example. GitHub's really up their game, I think, in terms of their, their search features across the, the code bases, especially. But it's still second to what the, the core of the product actually wants to be. And really, we're giving you another way in, right? We're helping you more. We're really helping you work more effectively with those tools. Now you can actually find the thing in Confluence and be more effective with it than you could before. So I don't know that we're competitive. I'm sure some companies are going to take a stab at doing this thing, right? But it's not their core competency. It's not the thing they were set up to do. So I don't know that they're going to be terribly effective at it. But most really, if they're smart, in my opinion, will focus on their core competency and then allow us to better drive people into their tools from wherever they are. So if you're in, if you're in Confluence, wouldn't it be great if contextually you could see this Confluence page is also talked about in this pull request or in this Slack channel. It's like we already have the context around it. We already can pull the threads together here. Why can't we help you work more effectively with all these tools wherever they are? So far, we haven't seen any kind of pushback from the indexing standpoint. But the other reality is you're the customer. If you're paying for this tool and you're paying a lot of money for these tools, it's a little different if you're a hundred person company and how much leverage you have to say, hey, you, I want to be able to connect to Tolio to, to this thing. I think if you're a large enough organization, you're probably going to get what you want if, if that becomes a concern. I got to say also, you're probably increasing the value prop for like the Confluence and the Jira's because now it's easier for me to, to use and search across all of these platforms to find the data that I want or the information I want, where without an Atolio, that might be, might not be quite as easy with some of these products. I think so. I think it's really a, a huge benefit for them to fit in and just say, this is a tool where people can actually now find what they need and, and use it more effectively. And I don't really see why there would be opposition to it. Obviously there's rate limit concerns and things like that, but we try and be smart about how we do things. Obviously play nice in those. But yeah, I look at it as just making these tools better. Everyone complains around search around these tools. They're like, wouldn't it be nice if it actually, you had a way of making it work without you having to invest the money and building better search, which is hard. It's really hard. So anyway, I'm optimistic. So far, it's been really good. We've had some good success with companies that are using Confluence and Jira and Slack and being able to pull those things together in, in Atolio today. The sheer amount of connectors that you guys have implemented already is, I'm looking at your, your page now, Bitbucket, Confluence, Jira. Linear, high spot, Azure AD, OneDrive, the amount of places where you're starting to get the data from. And honestly, being able to build that graph, I see a lot of interesting things. And to be honest, I, I think where Jim, Jeremy's getting at earlier, the use of this, the, the usefulness of this uh, tool, it, it's like exponentially growth as the bigger the company gets as like that 
that network of people grows as a, with a company. Oh, I think so. Yeah. And we continue to build out those connectors and that's a big investment, right? They need to work well. They need to understand the permission structure of blind data. Some are easier to write than others. The Atlassian stack is particularly tricky, I will say. That's part of what we have to do. A lot of the product is really plumbing, right? And I go back to boring software, but it's like data has to get in, it has to get indexed correctly, has to work 24-7, has to do the right thing. And there's a lot of value in that. <laughs> and the sexy stuff on top of that with the LMs, like that's super cool to work on, but none of that means anything without that plumbing actually doing what it's supposed to do all day and get it indexed into a state that you can do something with and be able to run not just full text search against it, but now loading beddings into it and do semantic search and, and all the other good stuff with it too and document summaries and all of that. But yeah, we're, we're very much customer driven in terms of which connectors we build next and that list will continue to expand. And also how we make that building of those connectors simpler, right? Because I think a lot of companies have their own proprietary data sources they're going to want to index here. You need to be able to have your engineering team say, hey, let's just go write the connector so we can hook up this proprietary thing and get it into the index as well. So we're trying to make that as simple as possible as well. That's, a, that's another aspect that'll probably stop other companies from trying to develop something like this, a conf, confluence or another company is you have this inventory of connectors already for a company, another company that's, this is not their wheelhouse for them to try to get to the point that it totally was at right now would take so much effort and so much work. And that's not their core competency, like you said. So you're already so far ahead of the game there. So I think it would be quite an effort to try to shift and try to get to the point that you guys are at. I mean, we've talked to multiple large organizations who've tackled this internally for themselves and they've had teams of you know, small teams of engineers be the strike force to figure out how to do this internally. But it's not the thing they should be doing, right? It's like all the things that they could be spending engineering resources on, it's not this. And they're never really going to do a great job at it because they're not deep in that space. And, and it's, to be honest, it's not enough to write a connector. Once you write it, you're not done. APIs move, right? Things change. Got to maintain it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to maintain it. That's on us to do that now and make sure that still works tomorrow as it way it does today. You don't want to be doing that. <laughs> it's like you could. Every company has the thing they want to be doing, and it's probably not this, but this is the thing we want to be doing, so we're all over it. Great. Before we go, I have one more. What do go you, ahead. I have one more question. I don't want to end. What do you want our audience to know about your company? Like, how would you pitch it to them? Our audience is good, but what do they want them to walk away with from thinking about it? you and Atoli itself? I want to give it a true plug, not just a conversation. I wish I was the salesperson and not the uh, engineer in the room. Yeah, I'm glad you're the engineer. I like the engineer better. That's why you're here. Yeah. You'd end up with the better, more succinct and, uh, and prettier pitch. But I think if, if I was to sum it up, it would be no one wants to spend their time digging around for information at work. They want to be doing work. They want to be productive, right? So how do you find the tool? that lets them get back to being productive, finding the people they need to talk to, opening those connections up, working more effectively with this information, leveraging the latest technology to do that. That's what we're trying to solve. And we're hyper customer focused on, on doing that and working with you and figuring out what's going to be right for you and your team to, to make that work in a secure and private fashion. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank well, you. I appreciate the opportunity to tell you about it. It's uh, super fun. Well, yeah. we'll definitely have to have you back and 
hear about some updates uh, in the future. Going to be lots of updates. It's going to be a very busy year. <laughs> <laughs> 2024. We had this offsite just, just this last few days. We're figuring out what comes next for our product here and what we're doing with it. And it's super inspiring. I'm excited to see where it goes, but I'm also excited to see the product. So I might have to reach out outside of that. There's nothing I like better than giving a demo. <laughs> so, yeah. I can talk about this stuff all day. You can't tell. So it's, it's the most interesting bit of technology right now, right? It's like we've, we hit on this, just the most interesting time with LLMs really coming to the forefront and this really feels like the bleeding edge and no one's really figured out how to blend this stuff together and that's what we're doing. So it's super sexy. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Thank right. you. Thanks so much, guys. That wraps it up for this episode of the Surprise Multiplayer Podcast. As always, we thank you for listening and hope that you'll join us again soon. As a reminder, any feedback, suggestions, or questions can be sent to banterreviewcrew at surprisemultiplayer.com. Until next time, keep exploring and stay curious. <laughs>